Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. How much sleep do we need, and how do you know if you're getting good sleep or not? Are there concerns that some people have not enough rest and maybe have some breathing conditions like sleep apnea? All of these things can directly impact your health. And today, I'm excited to have Dr. Valerie Cacho. She is here on the line today. She provides sleep expertise for residents of both Hawaii and California. And today, we're going to be talking about the importance of sleep with Dr. Cacho and how do we know if we're getting good sleep and good enough sleep and what's the best amount of sleep to get. So I want to thank you for joining me today, Dr. Cacho. Thanks you for being here. Thanks so much, Dr. Kozak. Very happy to be here to talk about my favorite topic, sleep. Well, I love sleep. I mean, I've always been the weird kid that when I was younger, I was like, is it nap time yet? I'll take a nap. I've always loved it. But, you know, as time has gone on, it isn't so easy anymore. Why is it that you think you know, good sleep is really important? I mean, is there are there health benefits to getting regular good rest Yes, most definitely. And that's a great question to start off with. And, you know, being a sleep medicine doctor, I'm very biased. I think sleep can make every aspect of your life better. And I typically start with a head down approach, right? If you start from the brain, what happens when you sleep, especially when you go into the deeper stages of sleep, there's this system that gets turned on. It's called the glymphatic system. And if you've heard about it before, good, but stick with me. I like to think of it as the trash collectors of your brain. So throughout the day, the longer we're awake, we actually build up these toxins. And when we go into the deeper stages of sleep, these toxins get cleaned out through the lymphatic system. And what we see for people who are short sleepers, if they have disrupted sleep from an underlying sleep condition like insomnia or even untreated obstructive sleep apnea, they have a higher risk for cognitive impairment, things like dementia and memory issues. So it's really important for your brain to get rest as you sleep. Going further down, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep, some of the research shows less than six hours, it can be really not helpful and almost damaging for your cardiovascular system, your heart. You know, your heart's an organ, and if it's pumping really hard all the time without getting the adequate rest it needs, when we do sleep, our blood pressure slows down, and also our heart rate slows down, and that's really important for our heart not to work so much. So for people who, on average, sleep less than six hours, we do see higher rates of high blood pressure and higher rates of cardiovascular disease. Another thing that we can think about is even our immune system. So there's been some research out of University of Pittsburgh where they gave healthy adults a little dose of the common cold through a swab um, inside their nose. And then they took um, these people and they basically slept deprived them (laughs) into different categories. And those sleeping less than six hours on average were two to threefold more likely to actually have symptoms of the cold, actually catch the cold, than those getting more than seven hours of sleep. So it's it's really sort of phenomenal how sleep can impact different aspects of our, our health. Now, not all sleep quantity is sleep yes. quality. So how do you know Definitely. if you're getting a good quality rest as opposed to just a certain number of hours? Yeah, that's a really good question. And So I follow sort of what the National Sleep Foundation recommends for adults. The recommended hours of sleep is between seven to nine, but that's a really good point. How do you know if you're getting enough sleep? So I think of sleep as, you know, filling your battery, filling the fuel tank of your car if you have a a gasoline-powered car. 
you know, are you able to do what you need to do during the day? Do you feel like you need an extra cup of coffee in the afternoon? Are you running to take a nap? Or, you know, when you get home from work, um, you fall asleep on the couch? I know those are things to look out for. Another thing, too, is beside your energy levels, how is your brain functioning, right? Do you have a hard time staying focused? Do you have a hard time with your memory? Those are things to consider as well. Those may be telltale signs you may not be getting enough sleep. Well, that's a really good way to look at it. Can you complete all your daily tasks without needing to rely on external substances like caffeine? Or some people reach for some sugar to get a little bit of energy. And do mm-hmm. you feel like you would do anything to take a nap? So if you can do that, then, you know, if you notice that you have enough energy to do all of your usual tasks, then you probably mm-hmm. are getting enough sleep for what you're doing. If you do a lot of physical activity, if you do a lot of exercise, do you need more rest and recovery? Oh, that's a good question. And I would say for the typical healthy adult, it is beneficial um, to relax and rest after um, you do have intense exercise because your muscles need to relax. There's actually been some research done on the soccer or football teams in the UK where, you know, a lot of times if you're part of a professional sports team, you're traveling a lot. Um, you know, for your work, right? And so when you travel, sometimes you're traveling between time zones. And so what some of the research has shown is that, you know, if you're traveling and then you do a a morning exercise or some routines and then you take a nap after lunchtime, your performance is better when you do take that afternoon nap versus the people who don't. Yeah, because, you know, it's been really good for your brain to recover and your body to recover. So... That's another reason to exercise because yeah. I can have a nap. That's something we have. Now, when people are getting sleep, we often talk about different stages of sleep because that actually mm-hmm. has an impact on how restful or how restorative your sleep is. How do you define the different stages of sleep? Yeah, and I follow the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Um, we have a scoring manual, and it really dictates, you know, what we see in the sleep lab. We're looking at the EEG data, which is electroencephalography. So if you were to come to a sleep lab, you know, the technician, the certified sleep technician would hook you up. There's a lot of different sensors. But the ones that specifically look at the different sleep stages are called EEG. So everything is external. Basically, they're like little stickers on your head. And what we're looking for is how fast or how slow your brain waves are going. So sometimes for people who have a hard time falling asleep or, you know, if they wake up in the middle of the night and have a hard time going back, now I ask them, what's keeping your brain waves from slowing down? So when we take a look at them, there's four stages. There's stage one, which is considered light sleep. I like to think of the stage of sleep if I'm on the couch at the end of a long day and I'm on my phone and it falls on my face. Very light sleep, you know, you if you're holding something, you can drop it because your muscles start to relax. Um, you start to yawn, and then you lose consciousness, and that's stage one. But it's very light stage, so you can wake up really fast if someone makes a noise or if you, you know, feel your phone hit your face. Stage two is a little bit, it's actually light sleep, but it's really similar. And in the lab, we see particular patterns um, called K-complexes or sleep spindles. And then stage three is a really slow-wave sleep or deep sleep or delta-wave sleep. 
and the EEG patterns are very slow. Um, it almost looks like undulating waves. It's almost relaxing to see. Um, and then there's REM sleep. So REM is rapid eye movement, and actually our brains are pretty active during this time. It's when we have our most vivid dreams, but our bodies are paralyzed, so we don't act out our dreams. We go through these four stages um, about four to six times a night, every 90 minutes, we cycle through them. Um, and yeah, depending on how much sleep you need, typically somewhere between four to six, um, you should be waking up refreshed. But if you aren't remembering your dreams, I wouldn't worry too much. If you haven't remembered your dreams for a long time, it doesn't mean that you're not necessarily having them, but it could potentially mean you're having it earlier in the night. Um, so that's why you can't remember it. Typically, we remember our dreams more in the lighter half of the night after we wake up. Oh, that explains a lot because there are some folks who say, you know, if you wake me up in the middle of the night, I might remember a dream, but by the next morning, I really don't. So if they're mm -hmm. having those dreams in those earlier cycles, that makes perfect sense. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Val Cacho, and we're going to see what are some of the abnormal patterns of sleep that can affect our ability to get adequate rest. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today I'm having a discussion with Dr. Val Cacho. She is running a sleep specialty clinic, talking about all the importance of getting good rest, available both to folks here in Hawaii and also in California. And Val, you just mentioned that there's different stages of sleep. Do we have a set amount of each stage that we need, or do we just base it on how restorative it is for our body? Yeah, and that's a great question, Dr. Kozak, especially with the advent of sleep trackers, which I can go into if you'd like. Um, most of the sleep that we have is light sleep. About 50% is a mix between stage one and two. Uh, stage three sleep, somewhere between 50 to 20, and then the rest is REM sleep. But guess what? You know, with gifts of Father Time, Mother Nature, as we get older, we have less deep sleep, so less stage three sleep and less REM sleep. And those are just age-related changes in our sleep cycles. But also, as we get older, we also have more health issues, um, not even including sleep issues. And some medications that we can be on can affect our sleep quality, our sleep stages. Some can suppress REM, some um, can you know cause more arousals at night, some can cause things like vivid dreams. Um, so as we get older, we still do in fact need seven to nine hours, but our sleep is more fragmented um, for multiple reasons, whether it's aging in and of itself, after the age of 55 and above, um, research does show we have decreased release in our melatonin, and melatonin is a natural sleep hormone that actually helps promote um, our sleep at night. It's not really a sleeping pill, but it really helps control the sleep stages. So there are changes that happen with aging, unfortunately. Well, you mentioned sleep trackers, and mm -hmm. I'm curious, some of the smartwatches these days have ways that they monitor heart rate, and I imagine maybe breathing rate or something along those lines. So how accurate are sleep trackers? And should people really invest in trying to figure out what their sleep pattern is? Or should they just go by their functioning during the day? 
Yeah, great question. I am a big fan of the latter. You know, I think if you wake up refreshed and energized and I say you're doing a good job, keep up the good work. Some people like to have that data. Some people um, are like engineers are really data driven or you know, there's a lot of folks who do use the trackers are in the, into biohacking. And so they're really looking at, you know, how can I maximize my score? It's sort of gamified. But when you take a look at how accurate they are, there's two main ways that a sleep tracker works. One of them is through accelerometry, which is basically it's based on movement. And that can be problematic because we can move through stage one, stage two, and stage three sleep. Um, but basically, we don't move through REM stages of sleep. And sometimes the algorithms in the tracker view deep sleep, which is considered stage um, three sleep, and it, it removes the fact that they actually we can move that stage. So in terms of stage uh, accuracy for sleep stages, the research is anywhere between 60 to 90 percent, probably an average closer to 70 from some of the things that I've read. But if you're looking to compare if you're awake versus sleep and you're wearing it at night, the accuracy for that is a lot higher. I would say higher 80s um, to 90 percent. So a lot better for sleep versus wake. And then the other way some of these trackers work is through heart rate variability. And there's a specific signal that, you know, our heart emits, basically how long it takes the heart rate to go through the whole system um, that gives a representation, it's basically a mathematical model that supposedly reads out if we're awake or asleep or the different sleep stages. I don't think it's that accurate, to be honest, but, you know, some people really find it useful. What I think it's more useful is, is if you're changing a lifestyle factor. So say maybe your baseline score is a little bit lower than you want. And then you talk to your doctor and they say, okay, start exercising or stop drinking caffeine after a certain point. If you make an intervention, it's good to have that pre and post data so you know if it's working for you. But tracking just for the sake of tracking to compare the numbers with your friend, especially if you're feeling good throughout the day, I don't think it's <laughs> too useful. And also there's a condition called orthosomnia where people are just so worried about their numbers and tracking, it actually, they actually can develop a form of insomnia. So it's over-tracking, yeah. Over-tracking. Well, <clears throat> I could certainly see if people became a little too obsessed with tracking every single night. You know, that could be a problem. But in general, mm -hmm. our bodies like to have patterns. So, yes. you know, if one of the things that, that I heard is that the body likes to go to bed around the same time, get up around the same time. So even on weekends, even though a lot of people say I can sleep in, that kind of sets their mm -hmm. week off. So if you can go to bed and get up around the same time every day, your body likes that better. You generally feel better. Is that true? Yes, definitely. And, and that's really based on the science of our homeostatic sleep drive. The longer you're awake, the sleepier you are. And so if you sleep later uh, on the weekends, you're sort of stealing away from some of that pressure and it can affect your ability to sleep at night. Sort of the same as if you took a nap at the end of a long work day, you're not as sleepy when your normal bedtime rolls around because you have to build up that pressure um, to go to sleep. Is it harmful? I mean, when you say take a nap after a long day, sometimes I think, oh, that just sounds glorious. But then you're right, you might not go to bed at the same time that evening. When you start to develop that kind of a pattern, is it is it harmful for you? Or if you have the time and, you know, you can sleep after work and 
stay awake for a few extra hours and go to bed a little later and it works for you? Can you just go with that? Man, I am definitely more of a, if it's not broke, don't (laughs) fix it or don't change it. But when you take a look at some of the literature, some of the research that shows um, either night shift workers or people who are more night owls, the medical sleep term for that is delayed sleep syndrome. Typically, people sleep less. Um, and, And if your sleeping patterns are sort of disjointed where think of it like jet lag you know sometimes like some healthcare workers they do a week of nights they're off they do another week of nights and they switch back to days Um, it really has some health consequences especially if this is done year after year if it's done chronically higher rates of cancers are actually seen with um, night shift workers so there are some i'd say long-term damages that can be done from inadequate an amount of sleep if it's, you know, a couple nights here or there, um, especially if you're younger, you're definitely a lot more resilient. You know, I'm sure we all, you know, going to med school, I didn't know much about sleep science and sleep health when I was a medical student. I remember staying up late, pulling all-nighters, and then sort of falling asleep during my test. But it was sort of like what we all did <laughs> during those times. When we could, right? And I got by. Yeah, and I got we by, got by, right? <laughs> so, Very true. Now, there are some things that affect sleep that are a little bit more worrisome. What Mm. would be the classic symptoms if somebody was concerned about something like sleep apnea? Because that's when you think you're getting adequate rest, but maybe you're not. And it might not be you, but it might be your significant other that says, you know, you're snoring or you're waking up a lot of times. Or maybe you yourself notice, hey, I'm getting up. Maybe I have some troubles. What would be worrisome and indicate somebody needs to consider checking for something like sleep apnea? Yeah, great question, Dr. Kozak. So being a medical sleep doctor, I have a very low threshold to test someone for obstructive sleep apnea. You know, the classic symptoms are snoring, gasping, choking, holding your breath, waking up refreshed, or having difficulty maintaining your energy throughout the day. Um, You know, being a medical doctor, some of the patients we call are say are slam dunk. You know, they they come in the clinic, um, they are falling asleep at the wheel. Um, you know, they're drinking a lot of coffee. Their bed partner says they snore, stop breathing. They're worried that they're going to die in their sleep. Those are classic symptoms. Those definitely should. Um, those folks definitely should have a sleep study. I would say, underdiagnosed or undertreated are a lot of women who potentially could have sleep apnea. There's a lot of gender bias in medicine, sleep medicine definitely as well. Um, Women tend to under-report that they snore. One study actually showed that women um, had the perception that they didn't snore as loud as men, so they actually did a study where they put men and women in the lab and measured the decibels, and that was not true, that women snore just as loud as men. But what some, some of the research shows is that when a woman will go and see their doctor and complain about being tired, they'll get blood work done to check their thyroid, or they'll get screened for depression and sent to a therapist, versus if a man will come into the doctor and say that they're tired, you know, they'll get screened and sent for a sleep study. So I would say if you're tired, if you have difficulty maintaining sleep, if you just feel like you're getting your at least seven hours and you're still tired, go talk to your doctor. Um, and you don't even necessarily have to be tired. Other symptoms include things like mood instability. Um, women can have headaches in the morning. And sometimes I feel like people don't even use the word sleepy or tired. They just use the word fatigue, which is a little bit different from being sleepy. Fatigue is maybe like you're running on low energy, but sleepy, you want to go ahead and take a nap. 
So sometimes the language that uh, patients have isn't the same that we could use to describe it sort of in the medical literature. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about sleep studies. How were they done and what are the new ways that they might even be able to be done in your own home? We'll be right back with Dr. Valcacho. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're talking with my sleep expert specialty friend, Dr. Val Cacho. And Val, you are currently an expert in sleep medicine, and you're treating folks both in Hawaii, also in California. What are some of the best ways to do sleep studies? You know, recently they've had these like home sleep studies that sometimes can tell people if they have a problem or not. There's always in-lab sleep studies, probably a bit of plus or minus of both. When you say you have a low threshold for testing someone for for sleep apnea, what sort of tests do you go to first? And when would you go to a more advanced test? Yeah, that's a great question. So it really depends on someone's pretest probability. So what do I mean for that? You know, sometimes patients come through and they have a video of their partner recording them, and they're holding their breath. They, they have an oxygen tracker, and it says their oxygen is going low, and we can see that they stop breathing. I would say those patients, we know for sure, have sleep apnea um, just based on the data that they brought in. But for insurance reasons, to even get them on therapy, we have to do a sleep study. So if you have a high suspicion from clinical history, someone snores, gas, stops breathing, oxygen goes low, feels really tired, doing a home sleep study would be fine. The problem is is that the home sleep studies aren't very sensitive for some folks who have more subtle symptoms. And typically women have more subtle symptoms. Um, You don't necessarily have to snore to have sleep apnea. Sometimes People, even though they do have a bed partner, they don't know if they snore or stop breathing because that person is you know, fast asleep or maybe they're on a CPAP themselves and so they can't really be able to provide that information. So if you are lower risk where you have a hard time staying asleep, you're not sure why, you're tired some days, but maybe some days not, I would say those patients would be best studied in the lab because the lab is a lot more sensitive because we're looking at their brain waves. And so having that extra information from the in-lab sleep study where we can actually look at their brain waves is so helpful. The home sleep study, the parameters that we measure are really only flow from a nasal cannula or a belt around their waist where the lungs are moving and then an oxygen and a heart rate monitor. So the home test, while they are helpful because you can sleep in the comfort of your own home and it's a lot more comfortable, they do miss a population of folks who have a different type of sleep apnea where their airway can partially collapse. And when I talk about the airway, it's the the muscles of the back of the throat where the tongue can collapse. And sometimes when this happens, the brain wakes them up before it completely collapses. The home sleep apnea test can miss that because the home test is really looking more for flow limitations and if the oxygen level goes low. So if you're not too sure if you have all the classic symptoms of sleep apnea, going to the lab um, is a lot better um, and because there's a technician there. 
Another reason to go to the lab is for people who move around a lot. If you move around a lot, you're tossing and turning, something people are kicking or they're falling out of bed, those home tests may not stay on. <laughs> and so if the kit isn't on, then we're not going to collect the data that we need. So going to the lab is more helpful because there's actually a sleep tech that's trained there. It's an attended study, so if the sensors fall off, they can put it back on. And then another reason to go to the lab is if you already have an underlying heart condition or potentially you could need uh, oxygen at night, or if you have an irregular heartbeat like an arrhythmia, uh, the inland sleep study does have the sensors that can monitor your heart rate. And so that's really helpful as well. Now with an in-lab study, if you go there with the intent of, do I have apnea or not? Midway through the night, they could actually put a mask on if you met the criteria to actually trial you on something like CPAP. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's something that I didn't say. So uh, what you described is called a split night study, where typically the first two hours, we observe you, watch how you breathe. And if you meet the criteria, which it doesn't take much, honestly, it's about five events per hour. So five times an hour where you're holding your breath for at least 10 seconds, um, then you can qualify for being on the CPAP machine, which is a positive airway pressure. It just moves all the soft tissue and um, soft tissue back. Typically, it's the tongue that's the issue, and it helps you breathe better. And a common reason why patients have a hard time with it is because the mask is uncomfortable. So going to the lab, having a specially trained sleep technician, they can try different masks on you, make sure it's not leaking, can also be very, very beneficial. What about some of the newer treatments that are related to, there's one that some of my patients have brought up, Inspire. It's sort of a device that might stimulate the muscles to stay open. Do things like that work for people who don't do well so well with the mask? Yeah, and that's the number one reason uh, someone can be referred to a surgeon who does do that implant. So the Inspire therapy, uh, it's also known as a hypoglossal nerve stimulator. So I think of it like a pacemaker. There's a device built into your chest wall with a wire that goes to the motor part of the hypoglossal nerve, which is a nerve to the tongue. So you don't feel any electric shock or stimulation. It basically gives a... Uh, a signal to the motor tongue, and it makes your tongue move forward, sort of like the geckos in Hawaii, right? You can see them sticking out your tongue. So at night when you sleep, because there's also a wire that goes near your lungs, when you take a deep breath in, that's the signal that goes to your tongue to move forward. And it's very gradual. I've done some what we call activations here um, in California where I'm based, and it's really neat to see how I had one patient who was having you know, a really bad time with her CPAP machine. It ran in her family. She tried all different kinds of settings and masks, but she just couldn't get used to it and was only sleeping four to five hours. She was put on the Inspire therapy a month later. Um, we increased the voltage. Basically, the signal gets stronger and stronger, so the tongue moves forward more. And it doesn't feel painful at all. People just say it's a weird sensation. Um, I got a message not too long ago that now she's able to sleep eight hours. And so it's very remarkable. Um, that's probably one of the, the most heartwarming stories that I've heard because she's been suffering with um, sleep apnea for probably over a decade. Wow. And there's, there's masks. There's the Inspire. There's also mandibular advancement devices. Dentists do those. Is that right? Yeah. Dentists 
are our friends <laughs> when CPAP doesn't work and if you're not interested in having an implant. So what a mandibular embassment device does, sort of like the Inspire therapy, it moves your lower jaw forward so the tongue moves out of the way because the tongue is typically the culprit um, in terms of sleep apnea. So when the tongue is advanced, you have more space in the back of your throat. And some of the surgeons tell me when they do um, take a look at the upper airway through the um, fiber optic scopes is that it only takes a couple millimeters to actually move the tongue out of the way to get more air into your body. So if you're a candidate, um, you have to have at least 10 teeth to have some of these oral appliances or mandibular advancement devices placed. One thing to note is they do seem a lot easier to use than a CPAP machine, but they do have some consequences. It can move your teeth around. It can move your jaw around. Um, they are sold sort of over-the-counter types on Amazon, just on online retailers. But make sure you have a dentist who follows because I've seen people who self-treated themselves and now they have an open bite, now they can't close their mouth, and now they need jaw surgery. Ooh, lots of troubles. Val, if somebody wants to get in touch and find out more information, do you have a website or somewhere they can go to hear a little bit more about the importance of good sleep? Yeah, it's uh, www.sleeplifemed.com. All right. Getting good sleep improves your life, improves your medical health. Well, I really appreciate your sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can go on hpr.org and follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. See you next week right here. Mm-hmm.